I'll be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your heads and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do, do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Recite with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the whole church said. Amen. Teaching has been around for a very, very long time. Uh, probably started with the idea that Eve needed to make sure that people knew how to build a fire. Adam needed to be sure how uh, they knew how to hunt game or maybe to scratch the earth and put seeds in and bring forth from the ground. Uh, parents have always had to teach children the, the arts of survival. Um, I remember Elise one day uh, decided to drop a penny behind a plug. And uh, that had a big reaction, and she learned two lessons. One, don't put pennies behind plugs. And number two, it really doesn't do any good to lie about doing it when your fingers are charred. So, but somewhere about five or six hundred years before Christ, um, the process of logic began to take place. And Socrates is kind of credited with that earliest form of 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 uniform sense of logic and wisdom, and he uh, began what was called the Socratic school. If you were wealthy and you were male, you and you lived anywhere near where Socrates was, you could come and be part of the Socrates school. and And there are records of that, and even some of what is written about Socrates seems to come from that school. Interestingly, almost at exactly the same time. Um, Isaiah is writing and, and Israel is going into exile. And in exile, Israel began to realize, it was in exile or after the exile, that Israel began to realize we can't just think of ourselves as being God's people because we have Jerusalem or we have the temple. In fact, what being God's people had been destroyed for the most part. No land, no temple, no sacrifices, no nothing, except what they took with them to exile apparently was some of the earliest forms of some of the books that we have or all of the books that we have in the Old Testament. And they began to build buildings. We call them synagogues, places to gather. And what they decided they needed to do at the synagogue was to read God's word together. It is even at that time that the form of the books that you have in your New Testament, not the order that you have, but the form that they appear in your Old Testament, begins to really kind of take its final, uh, the way it's composed for you now. But the synagogue was not just used on Saturday, Sabbath day, to sit and read. 
Synagogue became a place because if we're going to learn what God says, we're going to need to be able to read what God says. And so, again, not my fault. Please don't blame me. I'm not exactly sure it's God's fault. This seems to be part of the fall. They said the boys could come to synagogue and the boys would sit in synagogue and they would learn their alphabet, their Hebrew alphabet, and then they would begin to learn words. If you look at Psalm 119, each one of the sections of that psalm begins with a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so you would learn your alphabet by memorizing things like this. They would, of course, turn to the book of Proverbs and read it together. Over and over again. The teacher would read it. They would read it. They would, he would ask questions and they would respond. A system that continued when they returned from the exile and came back to the promised land, came back to Judea and came back to Galilee. In fact, this would have been the kind of school that Jesus himself grew up in and would have learned God's word. We would say maybe for the first time, it's hard to know. Jesus seems to know a lot of things innately. He's specially gifted with the Holy Spirit. But it is, to a certain extent, what he's doing when at 12 years old, he decides to get lost from his parents and stay in Jerusalem for two days and sit in the temple and hear them ask questions and ask questions himself and participate in this dialogue. He had already learned enough to participate in that dialogue. The American experience. John Adams said in early America that we would have to have education for everyone. Democracy will not work if all her people are not educated. It wasn't just the wealthy. Again, the European system that they came from would have said if you were wealthy enough, if you were a landowner and you were a male, you could learn. When it came to America, John Adams particularly, and Benjamin Franklin to a certain extent, said we've got to have schools for everybody. And they can't be the kind of thing that you have to pay for. The government's going to finance. In fact, Pennsylvania became the first place to actually put money aside to say, no, we're going to educate absolutely everybody. It's kind of interesting to me when you look back to the earliest classrooms, they all have blackboards. Isn't that amazing how blackboards got started so early and you'd have to write on it with chalk and do your math and do your words and all those kinds of things. And while we don't have necessarily blackboards anymore, classrooms are still filled with whiteboards and things like that. And no matter how much technology has advanced, the requirement for education is that there is a teacher, that someone who has a set of knowledge wants to pass that along to another group of people. Uh, One of my favorite authors, Patricia Palaka, uh, writes a book called The Triple Creek Dam Affair. And in this, uh, the the story unfolds of, of a whole city where they have replaced all books with televisions. And even in school, teachers have been replaced by televisions. Except the problem is that nobody can read and nobody knows what they're doing. And so you need to read... Ant Chip and the Triple Creek Dam Affair someday if you want to get the end of that story. Because what we've discovered is that technology can be a great help, but it cannot replace the teacher. Amen? And uh, we are really thankful to have a congregation 
that is filled with people, so many people who give their lives to that educational process we've been praying over them recently. In a relatively unique way, the book of Deuteronomy points us to a more fundamental form of teaching. Because you see, unfortunately, the addition of professional teachers in education, and then to a certain extent the addition of professional ministers, professional biblical teachers, have some, in some ways made parents feel a little bit left out in that process. What started as a process that was exclusively about parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles teaching nieces, nephews, children, and grandchildren how to live life and do became slowly but surely supplanted by the idea of, no, you send your child to a special place and you allow those professionals or those experts to do the teaching. No matter how good our Bible classes are, and our Bible classes are great, That was not enthusiastic enough. And our Bible classes are great. There you go. You're getting it. Um, Today, I didn't do this on purpose. It just turned out that that I I could and Sharon needed help. And I got to sit in on this wonderful teacher of preschool children and how how children can come to understand the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and the harvesting of grain and the way God wants to take care of us. And it was really very special to be there. No matter how great our Bible classes are, particularly for our children, they cannot replace theological learning that takes place at home. They will never replace theological learning that takes place at home. You say, wait a minute, I've got a two-year-old. What theology am I doing? When you sing Jesus Loves Me, you are participating in theological education. When you were here Wednesday night and Kaysen started, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, you are participating in theological education. In many ways, I think some of our adult songs, we wrap so many complex phrases together, we almost miss the theology that's going on. That God is great. That this is amazing grace that we're doing. That his ancient words are sent to, to our lives for us to fill us and to change us who into, to what we are supposed to be. Powerful ways that you are involved every single day in theological education. You say, wait a minute, my children are out of the home. You're still teaching. You come to this church. You engage with children in your neighborhood You run into your children and grandchildren, even though they're not in your house, and that process continues to take place. I'm kind of curious if you've ever been, not to a livestock show, but to a junior fair and livestock show. Anybody ever been to a junior fair and livestock show? Um, When I was in Belton for 17 years, that was a bigger deal than it is at the Lake Jackson Church. Terry teaches in in the Columbia schools, and I think y'all call off school for a couple of days, don't you, for that? Is that true in Angleton as well, but still? Doesn't seem to be the case here. But I learned something very important. Parents may say, well, I don't know that I have anything to teach. I'm not sure I can help. I'm not sure. There's an expert who wants to do something more with them. But when I, very early on, this is way back in the early 90s, 
And I started attending, watching our kids. I was the youth minister showing their animals. I noticed something very important. No pig, no sheep, no cow, no chicken. Don't ask me how you judge a chicken. They got about two genes, and that they're all about the same. Turkeys, they would judge turkeys. Turkeys only have four genes by the time they get to be that kind of thing. And rabbits, I love the judge would pull the rabbit out of the cage and he'd rub it like this. And I'm like, what in the world is going on with this rabbit? But, but there was never a moment at any of those shows that there wasn't a pig back there the day he was supposed to go in there and get judged, he, she, that there wasn't a child in that pen and at least one, generally two parents in there washing it, they had blow dryers for the pigs, <laughs> making sure that it was just right. And constantly, now remember, show the pig, don't show yourself. Point to the pig, there's all these lessons going on. It made a big impact on me. Uh, I can remember very early on in my days there, and Ozzy has delivered a similar kind of message to our parents here, and I'm thankful for that. Ozzy's got a role to play in our youth group's lives. Amen? But he will never have as big an influence as moms and dads do. And if you are not willing to be teammates in that process, what he wants to do will have much less effect. I remember saying, I'll teach. I want to go to your kids' events. Y'all have to get involved in organizing this stuff. Because I can spend all my time organizing or I can spend my time teaching and visiting and going out and being with. And you know what they did? They jumped in with both feet because they saw a purpose and they saw a plan. God has always, and this is kind of interesting how Deuteronomy brings them back to this very important process. As families are in motion, as we continue to move forward, there is nothing that can replace it, nor is there anything more important than parents who want to tell children about the love of God. Amen. The passage that we just read, that Caden did such a good job of reading, um, points to three ways that we as parents are supposed to be teaching our children. First of all, it says, impress them on your children. Is the word of God involved in the life of your family? Randy, I didn't cue Randy to do what he said, but that's exactly what we're talking about. Randy finds time to be in the Word, and Randy doesn't see that as an event that's just for himself, but Randy uses that time to pass it on to Kaylin and Taylor. They're never going to forget that. They may not get the details of what those scriptures are about, but the idea that the Word of God is important is being planted very deeply within them, and someday it may well be that that idea of the word of God being important and that grandpa sends a verse, it may be that if the word of God is important, then what the word of God says is important and I want to hear that. This idea of impress them on them is just a very simple verb that says it ought to always be out there. We've been doing it for four weeks now. Is anybody tired of Hero Israel. Are you, is anybody tired of having to stand up and recite together, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one? I'm hoping not. 
Because I'm hoping that it is a repetition that you participate in your own life on a regular basis. Not that this is the only way to do it, but the idea that families might even try to memorize scriptures together. Pick one for a month, pick one for a week, and try to memorize it together. Because what you want to do is repeat it enough that it isn't simply God's Word over here in a Bible, but it is something that's part of our family, family's life. Impress them on your children. The next thing it says is talk about them when you sit and when you walk and when you lie down and when you get up. This idea of talking about the Word of God. That is to say, I am going to run into situations when I'm in the house. I'm going to run into situations when I'm out in the community. I'm going to run into situations when I'm at work or I'm working alongside my children at home. I'm going to run into situations as the day closes. And I want to be talking about what God has to say. I don't know about anybody else, but... My children grew up with lots of questions. Did anybody's children grow up with lots of questions? Maybe you're one of those children. I have a feeling you do because I've had you in Bible class and you're always kind of asking a question. Wait a minute, what? You know, maybe it's just the question of why do I have to be quiet when you're talking? Okay? We ought to have an answer for those kinds of questions. Maybe not those kinds of questions, but whenever they ask a question, have I been preparing my heart to talk about what God has to say about something, rather than simply saying something like, well, that's just the way we've always done it, or, forgive me, and I realize there's a point at which you get deep enough into the weeds that you simply have to say, I know that you're not convinced, but I need you to trust me on this. But I hope that your first reaction is not because I say so. Because of all the answers that we need to be giving, me saying so is so far down the line that it needs to be, in fact, the number one thing needs to be, well, God says this. And are you prepared to talk about that? And particularly in Jewish families, again, Jewish families that grew up educated in in that synagogue kind of school, where parents impressed words on them and repeated stories, there was always the sense of I answer a question with a story. There's an example right here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Before you have to work up lesson plans or anything like that, here's how Moses describes this kind of teaching along the way. In the future, your children will ask, what is the meaning of these laws, decrees, and regulations that the Lord our God has commanded us to obey? Then you will tell them. Again, notice, well, it's in this certain order. You have the worshiping God before an interaction with people, and God really wants us to interact with people in a very powerful sort of way. It differentiates us from the other peoples around us. You don't need that. You get to tell a story. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes. Now, what I want you to notice is, is this is Moses speaking at the end of the 40 years, and most of the people that would have seen the signs, theoretically, according to the text, there would have only been three, Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, 
who would have seen those signs. But we say it as if it is our story. Amen? Let me give you a slightly adjusted New Testament. I was lost in sin. But Jesus went to the cross for my sin. And through the waters of my baptism, he removed those sins. Not just for me, but for all those who will turn to him in faith. Amen? See, it's not that story. It's not their story. It's our story. Brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing terrifying blows against Egypt and Pharaoh and all his people. He brought us out of Egypt so he could give us this land. He has sworn to our ancestors. And the Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees to fear him so he can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as he has done to this day. For we will be counted as righteous when we obey all the commands the Lord our God has given us. Talk about them when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, and when you get up. Finally, tie them. Tie them on your wrist. Put them on your forehead and write them on the post of your door. We we would call it a gate to the house. It's a powerful way in which people would create symbols that kind of reminded them. Have you ever taken a post-it note and written your scripture for that month or that week on the post-it note and put it on the mirror in front of you so that you see it when you go to the bathroom, you go brush your teeth, whatever it may be. Can we, for our children, do the same sorts of things? And even before they read, can we understand that symbols mean things and that they can interpret those symbols in what they're doing? When we make a song a part of our greeting for each other or our goodbye or our, our uh, good night to them, We sing a song to our grandchildren every time that we see them before we leave. If we're on FaceTime with them, we sing, um, name of the child, Callie, 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 dear, you're very special. Brown, brown hair and hazel, hazel eyes. And we love you just that way. And they have a fun time with that. Joshua, towards the end, Uh, not the the end of the book of Joshua, they will take stones and write the commands of God on these stones as a reminder. It's a very powerful way in which people don't even have to talk to remember what God has to say. My wife appreciated so much. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself is printed on the wall of our house very powerful thing that hangs over our dining room table is a part of our family's lives. So if we are to be parents who can teach, then we have to be parents who allow God to be our all in all, the fear of the Lord to be the number one motivation in our life, and a desire to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Chapter 6, verse 6 says, These commands are to be on your heart.
We cannot teach if we are not filled. And you cannot be filled without the Word of God being a regular part of your life. We cannot teach if prayer is not a regular part of our life. And we cannot teach church. We cannot teach if we have not let what God says change who we are. Not just that we have some answer for doctrinal nuances of the churches of Christ, but that we have an answer that says, I have learned who God is, and I've learned what's at the center of who God is, and from that core and that center radiates everything that I want to be about. These commands are to be on your hearts. And as God blesses us, isn't it amazing that when we ask and open the door of our life for God to fill us with his word, to impress on us his word, to show us as we get up and lay down and go out and come in, to show us the way his love is manifested, we too can be people whose hearts are turned to God and therefore we have the opportunity to fill the hearts of those who are around us. Amen? Amen. So God's invitation continues to be because you can't substitute anything for this. I love God. Can you say it with me? I love God. Will you? Won't you? Can't you? Please. Take one more step today to say, I want the love of God to be my all in all. I want the amazing grace of God to be the foundation upon what my life is built on. If we can help you in any way, waters of baptism, you want to be a part of this church family in a, in a, in a formal sort of way, or you need some prayer not just of individuals in the church, but the church as a whole, to say, I have struggles and I need help. However, we can help you. Because what we want, what God wants, is for you to say, I love you. Won't you come as we stand and as we sing? When peace like a river.